Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our World Risk Register Threat Monitoring Service. These podcasts are released on a weekly basis, covering timely and relevant topics. In these discussions, we hope to shed light on evolving scenarios and provide actionable predictions and implications. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. everyone and thanks for joining us. For today's podcast on the Sublime Insight series, we're going to be talking about Sudan. So I'm joined by our Sub-Saharan Africa analysts, Ben Manson and Phil Riding. Thanks for joining us both. Thank you. So we'll start with you, Ben. What can you tell me, what can you tell all of us about the current situation in Sudan? So essentially we are dealing with the fallout of the removal from President Omar al-Bashir on the 11th of April, which took place following months of protests, which began in December, which I mean, it took place for a, a variety of reasons, political, social, and economic, but were kind of catalyzed by foreign currency shortages, which resulted in inflation and shortages of basic goods. And this kind of morphed through the coordination of a group called the Sudanese Professional Association into a dedicated campaign to remove al-Bashir, which reached its zenith something uh, around the 6th of April where they were able to hold a mass sit-in outside the defense ministry in central Khartoum, which, for a number of reasons, ballooned and attracted significant international attention, at which point uh, the US and uh, European countries became much more vocal about recognizing the demands of the protesters and saying, look, if you do not concede to their demands, this will significantly damage our relationships with Sudan, which is crucial because the Sudanese government was in the process of trying to uh, renegotiate its relationship with America uh, with regards its placement on the state sponsors of terrorism blacklist, which was preventing investment which the country was in desperate need of to resolve uh, deep-seated economic issues. And I, I think it's, it's this, it was this moment that really decided for a number of senior figures behind al-Bashir within the military that at this point he was costing them more than he, he was worth keeping around. So that's when they removed him on the 11th of April. However, protests have continued to this date. All right, so it sounds like there's a lot of deep-seated economic issues, a lot of different things that went into his removal, but he's gone. Why are there still protests? Yeah, I think uh, I'll just jump in and say that uh, there's probably some useful parallels to be drawn with uh, the situation that's currently ongoing in Algeria, and obviously we won't be the, the first people to make that comparison. But I mean, the situation that I think we currently find ourselves in is one where two uh, contrary trends are, are currently ongoing, and at some point the um, contradictions in those will have to be resolved. So just as in um, Algeria, where a long-running you know, fairly autocratic regime was removed as a consequence of a series of sustained protests. Once concessions have started to be made by uh, the government in Sudan, including obviously the removal of al-Bashir and the imprison- his imprisonment and, um, you know, the removal of several um, uh, individuals who were closely associated with him in the months prior to, to his final departure, uh, the, the, all that that has done is uh, to encourage you know, the Sudanese Professionals Association and, you know, their fellow uh, fellow protesters to 
you know, sustain their demands for political change, which is basically what we saw in Algeria, which is every concession effectively resulted in, rather than appeasing, um, you know, the anti-government sentiment that was uh, that was present, all it did was exacerbate it. And I think we've arrived at that same point in Sudan now, where ultimately you're left with a transitional military council, which is desperate to hang on to power and to, uh, if it is to step aside, to, to manage that process very carefully, whereas... Obviously, because you know Omar Bashir has left after decades in power, it's now uh, encouraged uh, the Sudanese Professional Association and, and their um, you know uh, fellow demonstrators that you know they really are on the cusp of meaningful political change, and so they see no no reason to you know to go back to work effectively and and to, to step back from pushing for for really substantive changes that, that the TMC won't necessarily want to to concede. So you get these two kind of opposite trends, and at some point they'll have to be resolved. And at the moment, and I'm sure Ben will come on to this, it's not really clear whether or not that process is going to become increasingly violent or whether or not it, it can actually be managed after uh, you know, the, these vested interests that have been there for so long um, would uh, you know, otherwise prove to be something which is quite intractable and, and difficult to engage with. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely mirror those, mirror those comments. I mean, really, what we've seen since, um, since Al-Bashir's fall is kind of greater formalisation of the uh, protesters' demands, the formation of, from, you know, from outside of just the Sudanese Professional Association, from opposition groups and other activists, the, uh, the formation of a group called the Forces for um, Freedom and Change, which are representing civilians in negotiations with the Transitional Military Council, through which they are vigorously pursuing the formation of a civilian government, which the Military Council have said that they are supportive of, but are kind of desperate to retain some executive control over, which is completely contrary to the demands of the, of the protesters who, as Phil says, feel that they are very close to success here. Um, the TMC, um, Transitional Military Council, is in a further uh, difficult situation because they aren't in a position to simply remove the protesters by force or ignore their demands because this would defeat the very purpose of removing al-Bashir. The US has continued to state, look, if you want to be removed from the blacklist, then you need to um, engage and form a civilian government. So if they were to go contrary to that, that would essentially take them back to square one. It, it would negate the, the purpose of removing al-Bashir. So they have to engage in this process. So it sounds like we have two very uh, different kind of ideological factions going head to head. But is there any kind of room for middle ground that you see? Or what would your predictions be as far as, you know, a peaceful resolution? I mean, there, there is scope for um, reconciliation in that the protesters aren't completely ruling out working with the military. They have said that there would be military representatives on a civilian council. Uh, they have outlined various um, bodies that would come into exist during a transitional period, but disagreements continue. The disagreements over how that council would be balanced in terms of who would be sitting on it, uh, disagreements over the length of the transitional period, disagreements over who can, out of the military hierarchy, continue to operate uh, within, within a transitional government because they are very keen to ensure that members who were close to al-Bashir or are representative of al-Bashir's government step back from this entire process. But senior figures within the military who, of course, were close to al-Bashir because they are in the position they are because of that connection, 
cannot countenance losing control because to lose control of, of the uh, state would make them vulnerable to prosecutions down the line. It would make their interests, uh, it would threaten their interests. Uh, a particular example of this, I think, is Mohammed Ham Hamdan Dagalo, who is currently the deputy of uh, the Transitional Military Council. You know, this is a figure who has been very careful to speak and act as if he is supportive of a transition to a civilian rule, but he has a very problematic legacy. He led the Rapid Support Forces, which acted as a militia supporting al-Bashir throughout his regime, active in the Darfur region. And it is likely that were he to lose control or have his uh, power taken away from him, he, would be, he could be subject to prosecution in the future. So fears that he might be sidelined may push him and others like him to fall back upon the militias with which they have, uh, from where they draw support and operate um, and, and attempt to secure their assets that way. So look at thinking about those operating in the countries, um, or, or rather in Sudan, do we anticipate that this kind of uh, evolution of protecting your own interests and falling back on militia support would drive a significant escalation in the conflict? Um, or what are the kind of business ramifications that we can expect? I, I think it's likely that you would see um, sporadic and localized conflict. I don't think at this point that it, it would result in kind of a rapid escalation and a kind of broader conflict. I think it would be, any kind of fighting would be localized to specific areas where they could be sure of support. Yeah, um, I think just to, just to touch on a point that Ben made earlier, um, was that the opposition movement within uh, Sudan has generally been um, obviously directed by uh, the Sudanese Professionals Association, the SPA, but I think I'm right in saying, Ben, that over the course of the last several weeks, and I think you mentioned this a moment ago, there's, there's started to become a certain number of divisions within um, the opposition movement about the extensive reform that they're willing to tolerate from the TMC. So obviously those who are committed to the complete absence of any former members of um, the Bashir regime taking part in a future government, but there might be some who are more willing to you know, compromise with the TMC. Uh, is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I think... Th I mean, this goes on to a, a broader point about... You know, let's suppose that they can find a middle ground, which is possible, and a, a transition, a joint government can be formed. Even should that happen, we would expect to see significant divisions within those representing the military and the civilians, and then we would expect to see factions and friction between civilian representatives as well. Because currently, as Phil has said, we are starting to see divisions on certain points regarding the extent of the transition period and how many representatives of the military they would tolerate within a joint council. But, I mean, one of the main ways that the civilian movement has been able to hold together and, and kind of maintain some unity has been by being quite policy-light, by basically saying, look, we're about the removal of the old regime, we envisage a transitional period, but there is very little discussion on uh, different policy positions and... The movement is largely secular, so we would expect to see some pushback from um, Islamists and different interest groups within that movement. So I think, you know, through the coming transitional period, once a joint government is agreed, we would see enduring government instability and 
enduring policy risks. Yeah, I think the, the point I, I try and bring out about the, the fact that there are divisions within the, the opposition movement in, is that, as Ben says, obviously there are a number of drivers for, for violence that, that might result in you know, periodic clashes. And, and as Ben says, there's obviously going to be um, you know, government and, and policy instability for a, a number of months, if, if not years. But I think that the fact that there are those within the opposition movement that are willing to work with the, the, the TMC means that there is, that there is a road towards de-escalation, which you know, is, is relatively discernible, even, I think, even at this stage. Obviously, there's question marks over you know, where where and, and, and on what can both sides compromise. But there's, there's certainly, you know, it, it's relatively foreseeable that, you know, we don't simply end up in a, a large conflagration between the TMC, who desperately, desperately won't move, and, you know, an opposition movement, which similarly won't give ground. You know, there's, there, because of the divisions that are emerging within the opposition, I think there are ways that that could perhaps be exploited by the TMC to avoid, a, you know, a, an outbreak of, of, of really extensive violence that serves no purpose, particularly not for the military either, as, as Ben says, because they, they then you know, run the risk of staying on US uh, sanctions and, and blacklists and you know, facing potentially further legal action when eventually this crisis is resolved. So. Great. So ending on somewhat of a high note then with there is a road to de-escalation yeah. that we can see, uh, though expecting ambiguity and policy uncertainty and regional instability um, in the near future, as well as a heightened risk for localized attacks. Is that? Yeah, I'm sure this is a topic we'll return to again. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Phil and Ben, for your insight. Uh, as always, any comments, please feel free to reach out to info at sublime.co.uk. And otherwise, uh, look forward to hearing from you next time. Thank you for listening, and we hope you have found this podcast useful. If you would like to learn more about our services, or if you have any questions or feedback, please get in touch at info at sibyline.co.uk.